John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are continuing our season of Lent, and we have now approached the final uh, non-named day in Lent. The next week that we will celebrate next week is the Feast of the Palms, or the Triumphal Entry, as some call it. And we have come now to a pivotal moment in the book of John. We have been in Luke, but our readings this year take us from Luke into John, and then we'll return back to Luke uh, in the final weeks. And as we approach Holy Week here to remember the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are following Jesus as He is intentionally moving to Jerusalem. We not only see that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, we absolutely must see why he is going to Jerusalem. We can't just notice the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We have to know why he's doing this. The reason that Jesus Christ is doing this is this. He knows God's plan to accomplish a great redemption through his death. And because he trusts the Father's 
power to raise him from the dead. He is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He knows that his death will have a transformative effect on the people and that he will not be put to shame, but he will be raised to new life. Therefore, as Christians, we do not just imitate the deeds of Christ, we also must imitate the faith of Christ. We are not just saved by faith in Christ, we are saved with the faith of Christ. That is to say that Christ himself is the perfect embodiment of what it looks like to be a Christian, quite literally. We must, therefore, understand the way that Jesus understood God's will. Without understanding the prophecies in God's word that foretold his sovereign plan in the cross of Christ, we cannot see the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. That is to say, God's word, the prophecies which were given by the prophets long ago, inform us of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because the beauty of Jesus Christ is not seen in a camera picture, it is seen in the story of his life, death, and resurrection. The inward attitude and his heart's motivation for trusting the Father and doing the Father's will. Jesus beautifully lovingly, knowingly willed to go to his own death, trusting that God would accomplish his own purposes. The reason that John the Apostle therefore records these events in these two different accounts, which are really unified in one theme, is this, that God's people would see the beauty of Jesus Christ as he intentionally goes to his death. I've been meditating upon just a single idea this season in Lent, and I've been saying to myself throughout the, di- throughout the day, uh, a few different times of the day after quiet times or, or when I get a moment of reflection, he had to die. And I think about that he not only had to die because of our sins, he made an atonement, but he willed to die. That is what these passages put forth. His life was not taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up doing the Father's will. John, therefore, is recording these things that we would see the beauty of Jesus, and in seeing the beauty of Jesus in his perfect example of free grace, or rather, that is, the participation of the grace of God in his obedience, that we would be moved to awe, that we would not just see him dying on the cross as purchasing something for us, but also that it was displaying the beauty of his person. That is, his work, his external work, was testifying to the inward moral purity and excellence of Christ. Jesus is displaying his will in doing the Father's will. And this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. So this message this morning is titled, God's Sovereign Plan in the Cross of Christ, because Jesus knows what that plan is, and Jesus wants his people to know what that plan is. And so the Holy Spirit moved John to record these things in these ways so that we would see who God is, that we would be transformed by the knowledge of the God who knows the end from the beginning and decrees what will take place and plans and then executes that plan. First, I want to look, therefore, at the fear of the Pharisees, their, their fear for this reprisal that the Romans would come and take away their place and their nation. 
I want to look then at how God sovereignly superimposes his word into this wicked priest's mouth and how he causes Caiaphas to do his will, even though Caiaphas did not know that he was doing God's will. Then I want to move to Mary's treasuring of Christ as a picture of what it means to treasure Jesus more than anything that we have. Then I want to move immediately to Judas's deception and how Jesus is permitting Judas to do God's will as well. And then finally, I want to look at what it means for us to see the beauty of God in the life of Christ. That is to say, God was doing something through the person and work of Jesus. Of course, we understand Jesus is divine. But what I mean by that is is God is doing something in Jesus in demonstrating His perfection and excellence. What What I mean by that is, it's not to say that Jesus is just some regular human man. He is divine, and as the Son of God, He is working with the Father and the Spirit to procure and purchase for Himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we must see the beauty of God's plan from eternity past, which is carried out in the life and the willing obedience of Jesus Christ. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is followed by many of the Jews who believe that he is the Christ. When we say the Christ, we simply mean the Messiah, the one who is anointed to sit on the throne of his father, David. In verse 45, John writes, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. After Lazarus is raised from the dead, the response of the Jews in these next few days is like a picture of what's going to actually happen through the entire Passion Week in the gospel. A man is raised from the dead and not all believe. Next time you're arguing the evidence with someone about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, know simply that Jesus warned that if they won't believe Moses, neither will they believe should one rise from the dead. Lazarus is raised from the dead, and all of the Jews in that area saw him, and yet not all believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Some who see what Jesus has done do indeed believe and trust in him, but others do not. In fact, the great many do not. Those who believe in John's gospel are the children of God who were born of the will of God not of their own choice. In John chapter 1, John outlines kind of in the intro to his entire gospel, he says that Jesus, in verse 11, came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the will of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The children of God are born of the will of God. God desires that his children would come to be, and therefore his desiring is his willing and the affecting of that will. Those who do not believe in him after Lazarus is raised from the dead go instead to kind of snitch to the Pharisees. They're afraid that what Jesus is doing will topple the religious structures of their day. They, the party of the Pharisees, were beginning to lose face in front of the sight of the people. After the the Pharisees hear about this, they then respond 
to Jesus. Uh, they respond rather by taking counsel against Jesus. Excuse me. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They weren't correct there. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. As Jesus' power is being displayed and people believe in him, the Pharisees are having a twofold fear, both of losing authority in the sight of the people and a Roman reprisal. The Pharisees do not seem to care if he's actually the Messiah. It's very important to note this because if Jesus is the Messiah, we would expect that the Pharisees would welcome the Messiah, and yet their speech reveals their heart attitude. What began, to begin, what began to take place with the crowds who were going off to John the Baptist to be baptized by him in the Jordan is now coming to maturity. They are losing authority over the people of Israel. The Pharisees are being displayed as what they are, whitewashed tombs with no power, no fruit. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees routinely try to maintain authority and reputation in the eyes of the people. Later, in just two chapters, we'll read in John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to one another at the triumphal entry, you see that you are gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees are constantly trying to maintain power and they're grasping at what is being taken away from them. The kingdom of God is being given to a nation who will produce the fruits in his examination of, of Jesus, Pilate will observe the jealousy of the Pharisees for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Mark records in Mark 15.10, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. See, the Pharisees are not just afraid of Roman reprisal. They are afraid that they are losing control over the people. But the Pharisees likewise fear what they perceive as an inevitable outcome of the arrival of what they perceive as a false Messiah. It is deeply helpful to know history because history, although the Scripture is sufficient, history is assumed by the gospel writer. John is writing to a group of people in the first century, and they would have well known the history of Israel. This would be like arriving in the 1810s and kind of describing to uh, an American soldier or someone who was in the war for independence and, and kind of just describing the after effects of the next British skirmishes. Everyone would know the context. Likewise, if you, if you arrived in the late 2000s talking about the war on terror, you wouldn't need to explain to modern Americans the predicate of 9-11 of and all of the context there. John is describing the Pharisees' fear to an audience who knows the history at the time of Jesus Christ. This history is accessible to us, but most of us don't know it, and I thought it would be helpful to spend just a minute or two to explain what they're talking about. Because they expected a Messiah who would accomplish a political rebellion, they believed that Jesus or his followers were about to spark a rebellion which Rome would subsequently smash. In the period immediately following the Maccabean War, there were multitudes of false messiahs. 
these false messiahs were preying upon the prophetic expectations of the people of Israel. Before the Romans conquered what now will be called Palestine, the Seleucids had conquered all of Israel, and the Maccabean War was an attempt to throw off the Seleucid oppression. Likewise, after the Seleucids were thrown off, the Romans eventually came to power and took over the nation. Over and over again, military uh, self-proclaimed messiahs were rising up and trying to spark rebellions. And each of these rebellions was kind of poking Rome for an answer. It was perturbing the Roman emperors to finally deal with the problem of Palestine. These Pharisees are fearful that Rome is finally at the breaking point and would come in and deal once and for all with the messianic hopes of Israel by destroying them completely. That's what they're saying, that the Romans will come and take away our place and our nations. What indeed did happen after Christ's death is what they fear immediately. Their fear is legitimate. They actually are sensing, the, they have a good gauge or a good taking of the temperature of the political climate. However, what we see through the rest of the New Testament is that instead of their legitimate fear being answered by their counsel, instead of avoiding what comes to pass, they actually seal their fate by what they do. They hope to put Christ to death so that the inevitable rebellion doesn't happen, and yet by putting Christ to death, they choose to reject the Messiah fully. As their counsel continues, God dramatically speaks through Caiaphas' own mouth as John highlights his position as the high priest. In verse 49, John highlights But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. It's important to note that the scriptures contain beautiful jokes. I want to explain this beautiful joke. And when you explain a joke, it loses a lot of its humor, but I'm going to risk it. Because if you don't get what's being said, it's not funny at all. So he is telling the rest of the Pharisees, you don't know anything, guys. There's a strategy here. They're afraid that the Romans will come and take away the nation because the rebellion which Jesus or his disciples will spark will eventually be squelched completely. And the Roman emperors will just say, while you're dealing with the rebellion, just take out the nation. We're sick of Palestine. Caiaphas says to their council, you guys are thinking this is inevitable. There's a way out. And so he calls them ignorant and then immediately begins to speak and he doesn't even know what he's saying. That's the joke. You know nothing at all. And then he begins to boast in what he says. And yet at the same time, John is about to say that he doesn't even decide the words he speaks. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. As high priest, Caiaphas had a limited delegated authority under God, and that was given that God's sovereign purpose might succeed. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, in God's coincidence, he had Andy speak about the honoring of our father and mother in the fourth commandment, uh, the fifth commandment, excuse me. And uh, I, I was just, I love that, 
sermon on the Sabbath so much, I just I got the numbers confused. What he said in that sermon was that the honor of the magistrate is an extension of the fifth commandment. And a beautiful aspect of that is that God uses broken vessels to accomplish his prophecy. We see by John's explanation that Caiaphas's prophecy actually has a double meaning. Caiaphas intended to say that Jesus should die now and the eventual rebellion be snuffed out before it takes place rather than the entire nation be destroyed as the Romans stomp out that rebellion. Caiaphas did not intend to explain the mystery of how the death of Christ might be effective for the salvation of the entire church of God. And yet John the Apostle tells us as much as he interprets Caiaphas's words as being by God's superimposition of his sovereign will. I want to say that one more time. John the Apostle interprets Caiaphas's words that as Caiaphas is speaking, God is superimposing a greater meaning on Caiaphas's speech. Caiaphas says, we can stop the inevitable rebellion, and God is prophesying the gospel. Verse 51, John the Apostle interprets as, our, as the narrator and commentator, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see what takes place? Caiaphas says these words, they do not, the Pharisees do not understand what he means, what God means through Caiaphas, and therefore they seal their own fate. Jesus interprets this telling of the narrative to explain this absolutely stunning double meaning. Just a key to John's gospel, if you've ever been confused by John's gospel, John will often say things twice, and occasionally he will say something once, and it has to be understood two ways. Jesus' death did not take place so that the nation of Israel would not be destroyed, for we know from history it actually was destroyed. But rather, Jesus died so that all the covenant promises of God that were given to the patriarchs of old to Abraham, would come to the children of Abraham, who we know are not of seed, not of ethnicity, but of faith. God did not desire that his covenant promises would fail, and he did not desire that the believing Jews would be lost to the destruction of eternal judgment. Because the Pharisees did not understand the true meaning of Caiaphas's words, that is, God's meaning of Caiaphas's words, they conspired together to put Christ to death. God not only spoke through Caiaphas in order that we might see his glorious plan in the atonement of Christ, but God also desired that Caiaphas's counsel would succeed so that they would carry out his plan. This is a very complicated idea, but I just want to break it down to two halves. God spoke through Caiaphas, and someone heard it so that John could write it down. And John closes and opens his gospel saying that those who believe in Jesus have life in him. And he said that he wrote, at the close of his gospel, he said he wrote his gospel that you would believe in him and have life in his name. So we know that God spoke through Caiaphas so that we would hear those words 
and see how God prophesied through a broken vessel of the gospel that Jesus would not die for the nation of alone, but to gather into one people all the children of God who were scattered abroad. But he also spoke through Caiaphas' words so that the rest of the Pharisees would indeed carry out his plan. This is stunning. If you capture what this is saying, it is stunning. John is explaining that God overruled Caiaphas' speech for two purposes, to secure the Pharisees' counsel and to prophesy to the elect about the gospel. John is clearly saying this because he says Caiaphas' prophecy was not of his own accord, which means nothing less than that God the Spirit spoke through this broken vessel to tell forth of his divine plan so that the readers of John's gospel might perceive his manifold wisdom in his eternal plan, hidden from mysteries long ago, but now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. At the end of explaining how God has dealt with Israel and the Gentiles, Paul explodes in worship in Romans 11.33. And at this time, it is helpful for us to do likewise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Brothers and sisters, our God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Yahweh reigns. He is king. So as the Passover approaches, Jesus, knowing God's plan, therefore goes to Jerusalem by way of Bethany. He does not go immediately up to Jerusalem because he would be put to death, but he goes to Bethany to buy some time to enter at the Passover at the right time. We also see the friendship of Jesus Christ here as he goes to visit with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary and to spend time with them. Six days, verse 1, John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had risen from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Isn't it interesting that Martha is still serving? I think it's actually the same account recorded different times. It might be multiple accounts. Who knows? And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. After Lazarus has been raised to life, his presence at the table is again a picture of the benefit of salvation which Christ has purchased for his people. Lazarus has been raised to life. He's now alive again once once again, and now comes and has a meal, not with Christ alone, but with Mary and Martha and all those who the Lord has been been redeeming. After this meal, Mary expresses outwardly through her deeds her gratitude for what Christ has done for her and her brother. If you go back and read John 11, you see Mary's broken heart because she feels betrayed by Jesus, that if you would have just come, my brother would not have died. And yet Jesus, understanding what he's going to do, reveals his power and person to Mary by letting Lazarus die, knowing what he will accomplish in raising him up. And because of this, not only has Mary been delivered of of wickedness, she's also seen Christ's power, and therefore she's gotten a glimpse by the Spirit of his person. What Mary does externally here is profound. Mary, therefore, verse 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This expensive ointment was a costly gift which could only be spent once. Unlike our perfumes which have wonderful spritzing bottles and nozzles that don't allow them to be contaminated as they are used, this sort of ointment would have been held in a box or a vial made out of alabaster, which the only analog I could think of would be like a plaster mixed with wax. And once you open it, you really use it. You, you can't really put it back together that easily. This is much like we saw last week with the fatted calf. It's an exclusive treasure bestowed upon one who is supreme, supremely desirable, and supremely valuable. Mary's act, therefore, of breaking this vial over Christ's feet is an act of devotion in which Mary literally pours out what is her treasure. This vial, as Judas will comment, is an expensive oil and ointment. It might be perhaps as expensive as a year's salary. Now, if you don't have a job which pays a lot, it might be hard to put it into terms, but this amount, 300 denarii, is is kind of like if you had a very good job and had worked for a year, and you'd saved everything you made that year. Those of you who have children or, or just houses where you spend a lot, you know it's hard to save even double digits percentage of your take-home pay. This is an entire year's salary. It might have taken five to ten years to save this amount. And she takes this 300 denarii, approximately 300 days' wages, and she pours it upon his feet. By doing this, she says that Jesus is better than owning this thing. Spikenard, as as John calls it, is the greatest of the perfumes. And a perfume made of pure nard, not nard mixed with something else, would be deeply fragrant. As this perfume fills this house, all in the house notice her act, as her devotion testifies to all of the worth of Christ. What Mary does is nothing less than absolute worship. It is total devotion. It is worshiping at someone's feet, calling that person through your deeds as supremely valuable. Mary, by what she does, is expressing what is in her heart, that she treasures Christ more than anything else. This is a beautiful and wonderful picture of what it means to worship God. It means that God becomes for us all that we could ever wish for, all that we could ever want, greater than our money and cars and, tie, uh, and, and eventual retirement plans, and better than our positions and our jobs and in the church and our familial relationships. As one pastor put it as I was listening to his sermon, we love the Lord Jesus a thousand times more than we love our wives. Brothers and sisters, that is what Mary is doing in this passage. She's pouring out the best gift that she could have given to the Lord Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian devoted to loving the Lord. And yet immediately after this amazing example of what pure devotion is, Judas offers up what can be nothing less than a pointless objection done after Mary's vial had already been spilt. 
In verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6 says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John highlights Judas's motive for this objection, commenting that his actions are suspect because he's about to betray Jesus Christ. As I said, Judas's objection is fruitless. No actions can be reversed, let alone Mary can't put the ointment back into the vial. Judas said this so that he would be seen by others in the house as generous. All the while, John comments that he's truly a thief. Judas's speech, again, reveals what is in his heart. He loves money. Mary had treasured Jesus by anointing him for burial, but Judas wants the money more than Jesus to be prepared for his death. Immediately, Jesus therefore rebukes Judas, telling of his knowledge of his impending death. In verse 7, it reads, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In this passage, we see the beauty of Christ, that even as he is reclined at table with his friends, he knows that he will soon go to the cross. Do you think that night that Jesus was making the dinner sour by mentioning his impending death? How beautiful is the heart of Jesus Christ, that he is spending time with these people, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, knowing that in just a week he will be put to death. And he is present with them to bless and present with them so that their worship would be received by him. We know, therefore, that Jesus is not captured, hoodwinked, or tricked into his death, but he went towards Jerusalem to accomplish all that the Father had desired. In John 10, two chapters prior, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What a wonderful Savior who freely gave himself for our behalf. As we close, I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning, that in seeing glimpses of God's plan, in seeing little aspects of it, we behold a picture of God's sovereign mercy that he temporarily withholds judgment against wickedness, that his ultimate purpose of displaying free grace would be accomplished. Jesus, though knowing what is in all men, permitted Judas to keep wielding authority over the money box, even unto his own betrayal, in order that Jesus might draw all men to himself. Jesus knew fully that Judas was appointed to turn against him, as the Psalms foretold, and as Peter testified in the upper room. In Acts 1, verse 16, Peter, as they're about to appoint someone to take Judas's place, he begins his address saying, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Jesus knows that Judas will very soon betray him, and yet he does not remove him from his limited place of authority, but permits him to continue operating over charge of the money bag 
so that he would eventually be betrayed by him. Jesus doesn't stop Judas. He knows who Judas is. In fact, we see this in the upper room, don't we? When he hands the morsel of bread to Judas, he doesn't put a stop to Judas's betrayal. That is how beautiful Jesus Christ is. Jesus does not just endure the cross. Jesus wants to go to the cross and, and indeed helps it take place. Likewise, as we saw at the beginning of the message, God temporarily permitted the evil counsel of the Pharisees and Caiaphas to succeed for a time that his ultimate purpose in the cross might be accomplished. In Psalm 2, the psalmist tells of those who seek to throw off the reign of Yahweh and of his Christ. In Psalm 2, 2 through 4, excuse me, 2 through 3, we read, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. In his testimony on the day of Pentecost, Peter therefore testifies that the actions of the Pharisees and the Romans were done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As we come to the close, I want to read from Acts 2, 22 through 24. Listen closely to these words, brothers and sisters. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God therefore raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. How glorious is God's wisdom and power declaring the end from the beginning. All of this took place that by Christ's death, he would, as John said, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Brothers and sisters, if you are perplexed by the evil that you see around you in this world, do not despair. God in these accounts has taken great wickedness against his own son and through that wickedness so sovereignly acted as to bring about his intended purpose, the majestic display of his grace as he gathered the church together to himself. So my call to you this morning, my call to all of us this morning, is that in seeing the beauty of God's work in the cross, let us treasure him for the great redemption which he has accomplished for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are an amazing God, that you not only have mercy upon your people, but that you so work in your people that you accomplish miraculous changes of what seems to be fate before our eyes. We pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us vision, that you are able to work through the worst circumstances to accomplish great redemption. We pray that we would not only see Jesus Christ and his wonderful free offering of his life up for us, but that we would therefore love him and worship him and seek to, through imitating him, tell of his glory to the world around us. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.